Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome, everyone, to the fourth panel of the Carnegie Global Dialogue series for Carnegie China for 2022-2023. Today's topic is China-EU relations one year into the Ukraine war. Uh, my name is Paul Hanley. I'm the director of Carnegie China, and today I'm glad to be joined by colleagues and friends, Ambassador Dan Baer, Dr. Liu Yawei, and Ambassador Chan Hung Chi, who will reflect on recent developments in EU-China relations. For those of you who are not familiar with this uh, Carnegie China Global Dialogue series, this is our 11th year of hosting this series. It is a series of discussions which examines China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspectives of Carnegie scholars across the globe at each of our global centers uh, and international experts from across the globe as well. You can find recordings of our previous, glo previous global dialogues on our uh, Carnegie China, uh, China in the World podcast site. Turning to today's discussions, uh, I'm delighted to introduce our three experts. Uh, first uh, is, I'll uh, start with the proximity to me here in Singapore, uh, is Ambassador Chan Hung Chi, who is Ambassador at Large with Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, previously, uh, Ambassador Chan served in New York as Singapore's permanent representative to the United Nations. Uh, during that time, she was concurrently accredited as Singapore's High Commissioner for Canada and Ambassador to Mexico. In 1996, of course, she became Singapore's ambassador to the United States in Washington, D.C., a role uh, that she served in for 16 years. Um, she in, in Singapore here, she serves in a number of important capacities. She's a trustee to the National University of Singapore. Uh, she's chairman of the board of the Institute for Southeast Asian Studies, Yusof Ishak Institute at National University of Singapore, She's on the governing board at Yale National University of Singapore, uh, and she's the global co-chair of the Asia Society. I want to say when I joined uh, the White House in 2004, Ambassador Chan had already been in D.C. for a number of years, and it was clear to me then she was a key part of the foreign policy establishment in Washington. Highly regarded, center of most important discussions, someone whose opinion and views were highly regarded. Uh, and it's one of the nice things for me now being here in Singapore, I'm able to check frequently with Hung Chi for her views and perspectives and get her advice. And I want to thank you, Ambassador, Hung, uh, Ambassador Chan, for joining our discussion tonight. Next is uh, Dr. Liu Yawei, uh, a senior advisor on China at the Carter Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and also an adjunct professor of political science at Emory University. Yawei is one of the world's premier China experts. He's an ex extremely important voice as well on debates around U.S.-China issues. Uh, at the Carter Center, uh, Yahweh directs the uh, center's China Focus and the program there. He's also chief editor of the center's U.S.-China Perception Monitor and China American Stories website. He's a member of Council on Foreign Relations. He's associate director of China Research Center in Atlanta. He's been involved with the Carter Center now, as I was saying to Ambassador Chan before we started, for over 25 years. Uh, and he's been 
a member of a number of uh, Carter Center missions around the world to observe, monitor uh, global elections. I will always be grateful to Yahweh for having invited me to a conference on U.S.-China at the Carter Center, where I had the chance to, to hear directly and meet uh, former president from former President Jimmy Carter, a president whose decisions to nor decision to normalize relations with uh, China has had a huge impact on the future of U.S.-China relations. So thank you, Yahweh, for joining tonight. And last but not least is Ambassador Dan Baer, who is Senior Vice President for Policy Research and Director of the Europe Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, looking at his bio before we started, uh, he's had an incredibly impressive and diverse career up to this point. It's involved private sector, uh, academia, politics, government, and now uh, think tank uh, with Carnegie Endowment. Early in his career with Boston Consulting Group, he moved on to teach at Georgetown and the McDonough School of Business. He joined the U.S. Department of State and served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and then was appointed to be U.S. Ambassador for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, returning after service in the government to his home state of Colorado, he served in the governor's cabinet uh, as, uh, as the executive director for higher education um, and was even a candidate uh, for U.S. Senate in the Democratic primaries uh, in Colorado in, in 2020. We're quite fortunate that uh, he was willing to move back to Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and join the Carnegie Endowment, where he serves in a very important role as senior vice president overseeing the full scope of research at the Carnegie Endowment in Washington and our global centers. Let me just say a few words before I turn to our panelists to kind of set the context. Um, as we were talking about before we kicked off the panel, there's been a lot of uh, events, activities, visits, um, and developments in China-EU relations. Um, and you know, we can go back, I think, to, to look at some of the shifts in China-EU relations. We can go back to 2019 uh, when uh, the EU's strategic outlook on China uh, was published and described China as it had before uh, as a cooperation partner, clearly articulating Europe's desire to continue to engage China constructively, to enhance uh, cooperation with China in addressing a range of global issues to include climate change, other important issues, at the same time, for the first time, the strategic outlook in 2019 described China as an economic competitor. And it laid out a number of concerns on China's approach to economics and trade. It also described China for the first time as a systemic rival, expressing concerns that China had put forth as putting forth alternative approaches to issues related to global governance. Uh, in 2020, the Comprehensive Investments Agreement, uh, which had been negotiated for many years between, between China and the European Commission, was put on ice, as they say, and to date has not been ratified by the European Parliament, uh, given uh, a number of, a, a range of concerns around uh, China's uh, actions and policies to include sanctions uh, that China levied against European officials uh, and uh, NGOs and, and think tank uh, scholars. Since then, um, in the last three years, I think it's safe to say the areas of divergence in EU-China relations have grown, um, many related to the issues 
like the war in Ukraine uh, and other issues related to human rights, while the areas of convergence and cooperation uh, that Europe has clearly articulated it wants to develop appear now more limited, uh, including on climate change and other important environmental issues. China's approach and positions regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been a cause of concern for many in Europe and appears to have caused some reputational damage to China from perspectives in Europe. Last week, we saw a number of visits. French President Emmanuel Macron and the President of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, both visited China together. Uh, Macron traveled with uh, 60 French CEOs. Uh, he adopted what some have described as a more business-oriented approach, stressing the importance of economic ties and commercial ties between Paris and Beijing. Von der Leyen, on the other hand, I would say expressed a tougher approach uh, and perspective. And, and in her speech, uh, which she gave in Brussels before she traveled, she highlighted the need uh, for Europe to de-risk uh, its economy away from China, distinct from the notion, of course, of decoupling, uh, which is more extreme, de-risking, um, and pointed out, frankly, that 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 uh, while Europe should do that, China is doing the same. Uh, she also reiterated that China's president has a responsibility to use his influence with Putin to improve the situation in Ukraine. Earlier this week, we saw Joseph Borrell, vice president of the European Commission, gave a speech arguing that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, he said, for the European Union to maintain a relationship of trust with China, which he said he would like to see, uh, if China does not contribute to a search for a political solution based on Russia's withdrawal from Ukrainian territory. Uh, and meanwhile, as tensions mount over the war in Ukraine, EU-China economic ties continue to develop. China remains the EU's largest trading partner with bilateral trade flows that exceed 850 billion euros in 2022. So my first question as I uh, turn to our experts will be around the question of does Europe have a unified China approach, a unified China policy? Uh, and I'd like to start off, and I'll start with Ambassador Chan. How would you describe Europe's position on China? It seems, as I described, many in the U.S., um, it seems to many in the U.S. that the European Union sort of has two different and in many ways contradictory approaches to deal with China. And one hand, stressing and promoting the importance of economics, commercial trade, on the other hand, concerns over risks of overdependence on China, challenges in security issues in the Asia Pacific, challenges with, with uh, China's uh, governance approach, views of human rights. Can these two approaches coexist? And does Europe, in fact, have a coherent strategy? And I'll turn first to Ambassador Chan Hongqi. Think you're still on mute. We can't quite hear you. Thank you, Paul. There you go. Yeah. Uh, let me say that uh, the view I will express is that of the region, and it's my region, Southeast Asia, largely, you know. Um, is Europe, does Europe have a view towards China? Does Europe has, have a view towards Asia? I think the European Union being an organization of 27 countries, it would be surprising if you did not have differences in foreign policy. It has always been so over you know, the years. And there's a differing view on Russia even before 
Ukraine, whether how much to engage with Russia. So of course there are differences of views within Europe on uh, how to deal with China, and particularly China post-Ukraine. Uh, I would say that, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the commission, expressed a tougher view. She wanted to de-risk the relationship, but not decouple. And uh, I think uh, President Macron expressed a view that is far more, uh, I think, willing to work with China as is, you know. So uh, that's the difference. But I found it interesting that I would say what joins all of Europe is probably the realization that you cannot decouple. You can have your differences, but decouple is not possible. In fact, von der Leyen uh, just addressed the European Parliament. And I understand, I watched her speech a bit, you know, and she did say that uh, decoupling is neither practical or possible. I think she's seen how vast China is. And, you know, Europe's markets uh, are really in China and the trade, as you pointed out, is great. So I, from the region, we see this slightly differently. We don't see such a unified position, but it wasn't so clear to us, you know, initially, because Ukraine showed a very unified Europe. But now we are seeing some differences and we don't think it's wrong. We don't think it weakens Europe. It's just the nature of things and how states do business. Thank you very much, Master Chan, for, for that. And uh, important to note that, you know, the, the expectation from Southeast Asia, or from yourself at least, as a representative from Southeast Asia, is that there's not an expectation to have a unified approach, that the differences um, are expected. Um, and we can get into some of those differences going forward. But let me first turn to Leo Yahweh and hear uh, his perspective on this question of whether or not there's a unified strategy um, uh, from Europe. And uh, how, how do you how do you view this issue? Thanks, uh, uh, Paul, for your nice introduction and for the invitation. I think you mentioned in your opening remarks, you know, like China is a competitor, China is a systemic rival. I think on that front, I think uh, most of the European countries are united. That China, today's China, uh, is different from China, say, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And, and so there, there is this growing awareness that China uh, does uh, pose a threat, you know, to the global order, which is so important uh, to European countries, uh, but also uh, to, you know, the, the concern that the, the Chinese government and, and other agencies and, and then the overseas Chinese, you know, there are many of them who live in European countries uh, are considered uh, to be, uh, you know, involved in penetrating the European society, uh, but the the visit, you know, by German Chancellor in October, right after the 20th Party Congress, and then the recent visit by the French President, and then uh, the German uh, Foreign Minister, the the U European Commission President, all indicate that you know, for Europe to decouple from China, uh, as as Ambassador Chen just said. It's it's not uh, possible. Uh, it will be nightmare not only uh, for Europe, uh, but I think for China 
it's also going to be a, a nightmarish uh, scenario. So both countries are working very hard. In the context of growing U.S.-China hostility toward each other, you know, in the words of some of the D.C. think tankers, you know, China has turned the page on U.S. Uh, in other words, China has basically feeling hopeless that this relationship, U.S.-China relationship, is going to be stabilized. And in that context, Europe, Europe has become more important. And uh, I, th I think the Macron visit just reminded me of the visit uh, by President Trump uh, back in 2017. You know, you know the business uh, conference, you know, President Xi offered a tour of the Forbidden City. So this time, you know, the tour of a garden in Guangzhou and uh, uh, and all the deals and uh, whether, uh, you know, how, how the visit is going to evolve. You know, Macron is facing a lot of criticism, but I, I think businesses probably are going to speak louder than those who are criticizing him. Uh, so maybe things are going to change a little bit. Yeah, well, that's a great opener. Uh, you point out, of course, that views have shifted. Uh, and you point out, of course, the language around uh, economic competitor and systemic rival is new. Um, and clearly, uh, there's concerns about areas where China may threaten the global order. But you also point out that Europe's not ready to decouple. There's still a desire to engage and, in effect, take advantage of the opportunities that exist for Europe but also find ways to deal with the uh, challenges. And your last point is very interesting about uh, uh, the United States and China's views that, you know, in a sense, no matter what they do, the relationship with the U.S. may not improve. But in but on the other hand, in their view, maybe Europe is still at play as a as a partner that can be pulled into China's orbit to a certain degree, and maybe uh, maybe China can be successful in driving some wedges between the U.S and uh, their European partners. And we can explore some of that later in our discussion. But before I do that, let me turn to Ambassador Dan Baer. Thanks, Paul. Um, and thanks for the opening comments from the other panelists. Um, I guess I would say a couple of things. First of all, to um, to, to issue a quick uh, corrective from my view of the perception that uh, there's nothing that China can do to have a more constructive relationship with the US. I think. There's a perception, partly because there are some loud voices in Congress in particular, that, that the U.S. is kind of eagerly trying to escalate tensions in some way uh, with China. And I, th I think that's inaccurate as a description of what the White House is trying to do. And I think if people would pay attention to what the Biden administration, what the administration is saying, the voices from the administration are quite sober. And in fact, I know that the administration has mul made multiple attempts, including behind the scenes, to try to uh, regain constructive dialogue with Chinese partners um, on key issues that we both have to face, and that actually the Chinese side has done quite a lot to to damage that. And you know, for example, you know, uh, Secretary Blinken's trip was planned when the Chinese decided to send the balloon over the United States, knowing that that was going to create. Uh, uh, consequences for public uh, perception, et cetera. It was the Chinese side that sabotaged that attempt at opening dialogue uh, through their behavior. And so I think we need to make sure that we're not letting China off the hook for seeking a constructive relationship. It takes two sides to, to make a constructive relationship happen. Um, and obviously there is rising competition. There are deep concerns about China's increasing assertiveness in the region. Um, the U.S. has more of a focus than Europe on the security concerns in, in the region. 
and and that, that is well understood. But I think in order for there to be constructive dialogue, it takes both China and the U.S. Uh, seeking that kind of constructive dialogue. And I am confident that the Biden administration would like to see more of that. Uh, not not to say that they are. Uh, Pollyanna-ish about, uh, about the very real challenges, but they understand the importance of open channels of communication. China has not reciprocated with uh, willingness to meet with senior officials, et cetera. And so it takes it takes two to tango on that. With respect to Europe, I think um, I agree that, that it's not, we shouldn't expect a unified position. We, frankly, you know, you don't hear a unified position from Washington a lot of the time. So why would you hear a unified position from the EU where the challenges of coordination are perhaps even greater? Um, I think where the EU tends to be more aligned because it is at its in its history and in its form more of an economic block is that the EU tends to be more aligned on, on the kind of economic part of uh, the relationship and tends to show differing assessments of the security challenges that are posed um, both by Russia and by China. Uh, and, and those differing assessments, I mean, I, I actually... People like to make a lot of divisions within the EU, and and certainly there are different perspectives. But those are not those are those are more differences in kind of tactical assessments of what will work, not differences in terms of long term goals. The EU actually is pretty united in terms of being founded on a set of universal values that 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 support a functional international system that is grounded in those values. And so I, I don't see those divisions as necessarily kind of deep ideological divisions. They are they are more practical divisions. If I could just offer one observation about uh, President Macron's trip, since others have, have mentioned it, you know, uh, there was a lot of blowback after that trip. There was a lot of criticism in Europe uh, from, from others that he had uh, uh, that he had perhaps given away too much um, in his comments. You know, one of the things that I think um, he, he spoke about the need for Europe to develop its own strategic autonomy, which is a which is a common phrase for him and something that he's been pushing for a long time, and that Europe needed to act as an independent strategic actor. One of the things that I think um, perhaps an irony of this is that you know his focus on the economic relationship, that's an area where Europe actually has unique leverage, perhaps even more leverage than the United States, because it is actually a larger market for China than the United States is. And Europe's uh, uh, focus on its own trade relationship, its own dependence on China, uh, its own need for that economic relationship sometimes obscures what is a mutual dependence. China also needs that relationship. The Chinese government is also concerned about economic growth uh, and the post-pandemic recovery. And, you know, while the trade imbalance, which Europeans often focus on, uh, China makes up about 9% of Europe's exports, about 20% of Europe's imports, uh, there, there is a two and a half billion dollar a day trade relationship. The imbalance in that is often a focus for European officials. But um, in the same way that if I owe you two hundred dollars, that's a problem for me. But if I owe you two hundred million dollars, that's a problem for you. Um, the, the imbalance in the trade relationship is also a problem for China because it's a, it's a real dependence uh, on European uh, markets for their export driven economy. And the Europeans could actually use leverage uh, within their negotiations with Beijing, I think much more aggressively than they do if they would put more, more focus on the fact that Beijing needs them, uh, Beijing needs Brussels in this, uh, not in the same way, but in a complementary way to the way that Brussels needs Beijing. That's a terrific point. Your last point, Dan, because it, it it's not couched, it's often not couched that way. It's couched that China has all the leverage here. But in fact, it's very clear, at least in my perspective, in my view, 
that China is, is quite worried about losing the European market uh, and is trying very hard to keep that at play. Um, and I appreciate your points on the U.S.-China relationship. Just for clarification, I think I don't think Liu Yiwei was saying that the U or, or nor, nor was I saying the U.S. has given up uh, trying to build constructive relations. There is a view uh, emerging from China lately uh, that we hear in our discussions that uh, the U.S.-China relationship, from a Chinese standpoint, is unfixable. And I don't agree with that for the reasons that you lay out, because I think if you look at what the Biden administration is trying to do, there is really an opportunity for much better dialogue, even, you know, unlike the Trump administration, the Biden administration has not uh, thrown out the notion of cooperating with China on issues of common concern. So I think there's a lot that can be, you know, guardrails, building crisis management mechanisms. There's a range of issues that the U.S. and China could work on together to put the relationship on better footing. Uh, and I agree with you that it, it will take China to step up and respond. And we haven't seen that as of late. Um, but there are some efforts, maybe with Janet Yellen's visit, Gina Raimondo's visit, we may see some positive things coming out. And Paul, I in both in both Washington and Beijing, the people who say it's impossible to, to have any channels of constructive conversation are, in a sense, uh, short-circuiting what is actually what is actually an important area for diplomacy. They are letting both Washington and Beijing off the hook. Yeah, absolutely. Chan Hongqi, did you want to? I think you're. Are you on? You're on mute still. I think. Sorry. Yes. Uh, I would like to make this point. Uh, Dan, you seem to think that uh, the balloon that went over to America was actually sent by. Uh, China on purpose. You don't buy into the theory where they say they meant it to go to Guam and it, the winds took it off course and it went to the United States. I gather from what you said, that's yeah. uh, I, your I, conclusion. China but, is a major yeah. world power and I don't think it was an accident. I treat them, I treat them with the respect that they demand. You know, there were lots of accidents and I've seen accidents happen. When uh, the US bombed the Beijing mission in Belgrade, I think. That was an accident. No Chinese believes that, okay? So accidents do happen, even though you're a big power, you're a superpower. But uh, I would say this, that uh, I, I'm hoping the two sides will talk because they cannot not talk. It's bad for you know world stability and so on. The Chinese are slow in coming to pick up the phone. And I guess if you are, Asian. Um, I'm, I'm just putting on the hat, you know, to think. Uh, the missile just shot down your balloon. And Xi Jinping is going to pick up the phone. Blinken cancelled the visit. Then later they want to pick up the phone. Would you pick up the phone? I think Xi Jinping's position would be weakened if he did that domestically. So they have their domestic politics too. So I think there's a bit of a play between both. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm a Southeast Asian Chinese. I'm a Singaporean, so I don't quite think exactly like a Chinese, but I do understand some aspects of Chinese culture. So I would say that uh, there's a lot of face involved, and maybe Dr. Liu could address that. Uh, but um, I think um, both sides should. I know that the White House is trying a lot, you know, trying very hard to try to reach out and 
establish some conversation, phone calls, and so on. Chinese are not picking it up yet, and I hope they will do so because it doesn't help if they don't. Can't hear you. Sorry, um, th those those are all very good points. I'm going to do my best to keep this discussion on China EU. We can certainly talk about China US as well, but I want to make sure that we do cover some some issues in China EU. And and one is I wanted to discuss was was we've talked about it uh, briefly is the impact of the war in Ukraine on China EU relations. And I want to start here with Dan, if I could. You know how, in your perspective, has Europe viewed China's position on the war? Um, how has is the war impacting EU-China relations? Many analysts argue that China's pro-Russia neutrality position, uh, which appeared evident during President Xi's visit to Moscow and meeting with President Putin last month, as well as uh, this week, you have the Chinese defense minister, Li Xiangfu, visiting with Moscow, that they've caused some reputational damage for China, some concerns uh, in uh, Europe, around the world, and including in Europe. But Dan, what's your sense of uh, how that's playing in terms of European perspectives on the relationship with China? I mean, I think it's playing on two levels. Um, one is that um, I don't think that the Chinese government has demonstrated to Europeans that they sufficiently understand the stakes of Russia's war against Ukraine as a security concern for Europe, um, and that they take seriously enough Europe's security concerns with respect to that war. Uh, and so that's why you've heard European leaders uh, repeatedly, and here's a place where Europe and the US are aligned, um, convey to the Chinese how serious an escalation it would be if China were to uh, deliver weapons to the Russians uh, in and aid them in prosecuting this illegal war that is in blatant violation of the UN Charter and threatens to undermine the international order. And so I think the Chinese government really uh, has not so far demonstrated a uh, seriousness of purpose in taking seriously the, the concerns of European partners that they claim to want to work with, uh, with respect to uh, the security challenge posed by that war. On a broader level, you know, you, you spoke of the, the the 2019 position that was adopted by the Council in 2020 um, as a part uh, that characterized China as a partner, competitor, and systemic rival. Um, von der Leyen's speech earlier this month maybe kind of replaced that frame a little bit. Um, she made three points. She said that, um, first of all, it was clear that the, the period of reform and opening had in China had uh, transformed into a period of security and control. Um, and that secure, second, that security and control was trumping uh, trade and markets in the, in the eyes of the CCP. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, that the CCP was uh, attempting to reshape the international system with China at the center. And I think one of the things that, uh, I mean, if I were giving advice to the, to, to the CCP, one of the things that I would point out is that from the European perspective, it reasonably looks like China is willing to let Russia be the demolition agent for the international system, while China waits to build in its place uh, a international system that is more reflective of Chinese desires. And that that is a real strategic move against Europe because it is against the international system that is grounded in uh, universal values uh, that Europe depends on and that Europe has been a chief champion of and has invested a great deal in. And in that respect, China's support for Russia is not just 
approximate support for a particular war that is ongoing uh, in Europe, but also a more global systemic attack on a system that Europe sees as fundamental to its long-term prosperity and security. Very interesting. Um, and I, I want to get the perspectives of Yahweh and Ambassador Chan on, on that final point uh, related to the international order. Um, your point on lethal assistance to Russia is one that we should look at as well. You know, I've often said, in a sense, I think, the, why we haven't seen China make moves yet around lethal assistance to Russia is, in fact, more over their concerns about the damage they might do to the relationship with Europe than their relationship with the United States. Um, but Yahweh, let me get your uh, perspectives on this question of the impact of the Ukraine war and China's positioning uh, and growing strategic relationship with Russia, and what impact is that having on its relations uh, with the EU? Yeah, I think the China's uh, not so neutral position on the war in Ukraine has a huge uh, reputational damage to China in Europe, because uh, Ukraine is not Xinjiang, Ukraine is not Taiwan. You know, Ukraine is next door to many European countries. Uh, for China not to condemn a naked aggression uh, of a European country, and for China to sacrifice one of the cores of its foreign policy, that is territorial integrity. You know, for many European countries, I don't know what happened uh, to my camera, but can you he still hear me or no? We can hear you. Okay. We can hear you, Yahweh. Yeah, I'll just keep talking and then I'll try to fix the, the camera. I, I, I think, you know, for many Europeans, it's, you know, it's not easy to comprehend what China is doing. Dan's uh, metaphor uh, is quite good. That is, uh, China sees uh, Russia as a demolition agent, and then China will pick up the pieces after the war is over, or after you know all the destruction that Putin is capable of doing. But I, I don't think that's actually uh, the position China is taking. I, I think China is taking this relatively risky position because China needs to hedge. You know, when European countries and the U.S. are getting so close to each other to launch this, you know, from again, from the Chinese perspective, you know, this massive campaign to contain, in the words of Xi Jinping, to contain, blockade, and suppress China, China not is not going to easily give up a partner, Russia, that will be very important, you know, if it comes down to what all of you have mentioned, you know, European countries are bigger market. U.S. is a very big market for China. And when decoupling happens, or when a conflict with the U.S. You know, over South China Sea or Taiwan Strait or East China Sea, when that happens, you know, China needs help, and, and Russia could be a big help. But China is very reluctant, as Paul mentioned, to provide lethal support to Russia. Actually, the majority of the Chinese scholars you know, the elite community in China, they are very much opposed uh, to the government position. They, they, they think that's a dangerous position, as was uh, expressed uh, by Huawei, the professor at Shanghai Administrative College. So China is, you know, dance a, a very uh, risky, but more or less balanced dance at this, at this point. I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you, Yahweh. Um, 
Ambassador Chan, uh, over to you on to that question, but but very interested in your perspective of Dan's formulation of China as the demolition actor in the international order where we're or sorry, Russia as the demolition actor and China picks up the pieces, rebuilds it in a way that's aligned more with China's preferences, which would be counter to your interests. Be interested in your on that question as well. Um like uh, Professor Liu, I don't quite buy the thesis that Dan has just proposed, before, you know, as the last point, that uh, China sees uh, Russia as a demolition agent and pushing forward first. I think the uh, invasion probably, the actual invasion caught them by surprise. They thought there could be some action or maybe it was just a threat. Like most Europeans thought so too, that in the end there'll be some settlement. Because I think in terms of you use force, a mass force, not to use it, but to threaten, and you hope to get the solution you want. So I don't get that. I think um, the, China has not condemned the action, uh, Russia's invasion. But I'm not sure India has actually condemned Russia's invasion either. So it's not the only country. But I think, unfortunately, that's put China in. Uh, in a spot is cause them reputational damage, and it will. It sort of is a. I think Europeans have made this the litmus test of the relationship, and it's uh, the more China does not do, you know, say something, you know, that is halfway meeting this because India tries to meet halfway, you know, uh, then I think uh, China will then be seen to be uh, not on the right side. You know, and uh, Borrell said the four pillars of uh, the EU, EU policy on China uh, are based on values, economic security, Taiwan, and Ukraine. So Ukraine is a very big piece. You know, mm. uh, I uh, I see China as actually being pushed to be with Russia right now, and it will not abandon Russia because uh, of the tightening of the United States and the NATO allies and the Pacific Rim allies, you know. So as the United States gathers its allies, China is looking for the ally. And Russia is the biggest ally and, you know, it has because the rest are what, North Korea, Albania, you know. So I really can't see China sort of not uh, sort of casting Russia aside. And that's how it has become. And uh, I know Paul knows I've been talking about multipolarity in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there is an emerging multipolarity. In Asia, if you ask us, we all think there's a multipolarity emerging. Mm -hmm. I say the US is in this uh, multipolarity is the asymmetrical pole. It's still the tallest pole, but there are so many other poles. It's China. It's uh, Japan, it's India, you know, European Union is a pole. And I think Europeans want to have strategic autonomy. They want some pole. So this is a new situation. And America that's used to being unipolar in the world order, you have to deal with the poles, you know. And how you deal with it really is going to decide on, you know, how the, we will live our lives in stability and peace, or is it going to be, pretty contentious. Ambassador Chan, can I follow up with one question on this issue of 
lethal assistance to Russia yes. by China. Uh, you pointed out it would be very damaging uh, for yes. China's relationship with Europe. What what do you think the possibility is that China will try to do this in a way that they feel they can hide or that they have plausible deniability through actors like Iran or North Korea? Because I agree with you. I think it would be a huge mistake. Uh, and I agree with you that many in China would, among the elite, would see it as a huge mistake for China to do something in an obvious way. But what you heard initially around the Munich Security Conference when Secretary of State Blinken first raised it was not only that the U.S. was worried about considerations by China to provide lethal assistance, but that they would try to do so in a way that wasn't seen or that they could do with and get away with it. You also heard that as well. You know, What's your uh, sense yeah. of this First of all, uh, what the U.S. said, the United States said at Munich, it was based on intelligence. And intelligence, where would they get this intelligence? I'm not sure they'll get it from China because I'm not sure that you know, despite the intelligence network is that strong in China now. So it would have got from Russia and the recent documents that are leaked indicate that there was a report hinting at this. Now, is it uh, Russia trying to destabilize and leak something so that the United States and China will not get together any closer? I mean, these are just some possibilities, you know, some of us speculate. Is this one of the scenes? Yeah, it's one of the possible scenarios. So uh, how will China, your question is, how will China uh, try to send assistance to Russia without being detected? Uh, I think there are some reports that some Chinese companies are sort of selling dual use. The United States is trying to determine that. Uh, would they use, uh, they, I think they know they're being watched like a hawk. And so I would be surprised if they try anything more than do use, you know. Uh, whether they are going to push Iran to sell. Iran wants to sell because they need the money, you know. And I think North Korea needs the money too. They're desperate. So I'm not sure. I, I hadn't thought of uh, China telling North Korea go sell or Iran, you know. These countries would want off their own because they need their money. You know, mm. where they're really in quite dire straits. But uh, as for the dual use um, uh, materials, I think that will go on and you try not to be detected. And some companies will be sanctioned as a result. Whether the United States will use this and say, as a result, you have crossed the line because of the companies with dual use, that's up to the United States. If you do that, it's clear you don't want a relationship. It seems to. Let me turn, if I could, to this question of uh, China uh, as a potential mediator on Ukraine. Um, is there a role for China to play in mediating or de-escalating the war in Ukraine? And if so, what role would that be? We've seen China's role recently in hosting the the, the, the final end game of the normalization of Saudi-Iran or the restoration of Saudi-Iran ties, uh, and some point to that as a potential model for mediating the war in Ukraine. My own view is that the Ukraine war is a lot tougher, um, but some people point to that. China has put forward a 12-point position paper 
Some wonder whether that can be used as part of a workable solution on the Ukraine crisis. It's also, there was some speculation that President Xi coming out of Moscow after his recent visit with President Putin would pick up the phone and call Zelensky, who he has not spoken to since prior to the invasion by, by Russia. Um, I'm not quite clear why he hasn't done that yet. I think it would put him, you know, some countries would be able to say, well, now China's, you know, be able to put it in a context of international diplomacy uh, and maybe offset some of the criticism of his growing strategic alignment and partnership with Putin. But nevertheless, he hasn't called uh, Zelensky yet. So I want to start with Yahweh, if I could, and just get a sense, what role, if any, Yahweh, do you see for China in this question? We hear more calls from Europe in this regard than we do in the United States. Uh, but what's your sense of this question? I think if you look at what European countries want China to do, number one, they want China to condemn. China has not done that. You know, that makes Europeans very frustrated and disappointed. Number two, they want China to say that it's wrong uh, to use nuclear weapons. And China has said that, I think, right after uh, Chancellor Schultz's visit. You know, China basically made the statement that nuclear wars cannot be fought and cannot be won. Thirdly, uh, European countries does not want China to provide lethal support. I think on that front, uh, China is very responsive. And I don't think, Paul, uh, China can provide lethal support and cover it. You know, as Ambassador Chen said, the intelligence collection by the U.S. is is such. There, there is no way uh, for China to hide it. Uh, number four, of course, is the mediation. You know, both uh, von der Leyen uh, and the German uh, foreign minister, they all want China to mediate. And China itself certainly wants to mediate. But I think the delay in the phone conversation between President Xi Jinping and, and President Zelensky is if you're going to call, then something concrete needs to come out. And, and I think that because if China is going to mediate, according to that 12-point 12, 12 position, you know, China basically said, let's have a ceasefire and then find a political solution. That's not something Ukraine wants to see now, because if you call a ceasefire, uh, then uh, Crimea is still uh, occupied by, and then, you know, Donbass and other areas, they're still occupied by the Russians. So unless Zelensky and China can reach some consensus in terms of how China is going to mediate and what it wants China to do, uh, that phone call is not going to take place. And the U.S. actually, I think, is very reluctant to see a phone call. It doesn't want to see China as a mediator uh, on, on this conflict, because when China brokered the Iran-Saudi Arabia deal, uh, there's a lot of pain in Washington, D.C. And, and, and basically, they started painting that China has a, its uh, ulterior motive in doing that. I mean, all powers you know, need to, to be responsible stakeholder. And I, I think that that's my uh, personal view on what China can do and cannot do. Thank you, Yahweh. Dan, let me turn to you, get uh, your your sense of uh, any Chinese role that can be played. Uh, and also on this question of, uh, you know, Xi Jinping and why not reaching out to, to Zelensky uh, to do more in that in that regard. I, I agree with you that it would be it would be at least clever public diplomacy for Xi Jinping to reach out to Zelensky at this point, And it would probably 
give talking points to those who are looking for talking points uh, for a reason not to see China as, as aiding and abetting a violation of international law. Um, I think in terms of, uh, I mean, I, I just, uh, two points. One, one um, there is, I think it, it's somewhat confounding, and I confess I'm a little bit confused too, recognizing the geopolitical pressures, uh, and I, I understand that one could see China as kind of uh, leaning on Russia as an ally of last resort because there's nobody else to to work with. I'm not sure that that's fully true, but I but I understand that, and that that can be one one view of why the the China Russia relationship has developed as it has. And I certainly agree with the idea that any attempt um, by Europeans or, or or Americans to somehow split that relationship would be futile at this point, and it's just not that that partnership is going to endure in some form going forward. It does seem to me confusing why Xi Jinping is willing to invest quite so much in it right now, because it doesn't seem like actually the benefits are as good for China as they are for Russia. Um, you know, Russia is not going to be a, ma a major economic partner the way the U.S. and the EU are for China going forward. Um, it doesn't have a lot to offer China other than kind of political cover of having a nuclear a nuclear armed uh, partner, um, and so. And she is giving up quite a lot of international legitimacy for this no limit partnership. And not only that, I mean, well, yes, he made the statement in terms of no nukes, um, uh, finally, not immediately, but finally made that statement. He also visited Moscow and then and and then a few days later, Putin moved tactical nukes into Belarus, and they agreed that they weren't going to move nukes into non-nuclear countries. Um, and so, uh, you know, Xi Jinping looked weak. Uh, Putin made him look weak. It made it look like uh, Putin wasn't actually uh, committed to that partnership or what it laid out. And for Xi Jinping to enter into a partnership that makes him look weak with a much weaker partner is is confounding. Like the, the rationale behind it from China's perspective is confounding, I think, to a lot of Europeans and Americans, myself included, the way that they've pursued this. Um, then on the question of mediation, I, I, I've heard something different than the other panelists. I, I have not heard from the Europeans a desire to have China mediate. I've heard a desire to have China moderate Putin. Um, the, the specific demand from Europeans or request from Europeans has been that Xi Jinping reach out to Putin and ask him to moderate his position on the war to open up the possibility for a political solution. I've seen Europeans, I think Burrell's latest speech, uh, or actually the speech that he wished he could have delivered on his visit, but his visit was canceled because of COVID, which he's now posted the speech online, um, which is the one that he would have delivered in China. It dismissed the 12-point plan as being unacceptable because it is a rehashing basically of Russian positions. And I think it would be unusual for anyone to think um, that China could moder could be the moderator of a uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, set of uh, peace talks or political solutions in the same way that I doubt that anybody would think that the US could be the credible moderator. China has thrown down with the aggressor and has said that they, are, they have an unlimited partnership with the aggressor who has violated international law in a, the most blatant violation of, of the UN Charter uh, since World War II, there's no way that China can be the credi credible mediator at this point. But China can play a constructive role in uh, working with Vladimir Putin to try to get him to take a more constructive attitude toward ending the war that he started. Dan, that's helpful. And I'm going to turn to Ambassador Chan. Um, right. I will note, however, that um, uh, uh, French President Macron has called on China to mediate uh, in the Ukraine war after a 
grand military ceremony and bilateral trade talks, he called on President Xi to bring back Russia to reason and mediate uh, in the Ukraine war. So minority voice, I agree with you, but there are- Bring back Russia to reason is, is I mean, he may be, he may be throwing a, that may be rhetorical flourish, but I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody thinks that uh, that yeah. China is an objective actor right now. Yeah, no, I take I take your point on that. I want to turn to Ambassador Chan and get her perspectives, um, but also I, it was very interesting. Dan made some interesting comments, and I'd also be interested in your because you had said something previously, which which ties into the you know the fact that President Xi meets with Putin. They talk about no, you know the, he has stressed the importance of no nukes uh, on this question of Ukraine after he leaves. Uh, Putin brings uh, tactile nukes into uh, Belarusia. You also pointed out that President Xi probably did not know that President Putin was going to do a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I agree with you. I suspect he probably thought that he would do some grab of Donbass or the Southeast region. Yeah. Uh, there were 6,000 Chinese citizens in Ukraine, and no one got a heads up that a full-scale invasion was coming their way. But to Dan's point, doesn't that make President Xi look weak in this relationship with Putin? How can he do those things when, you know, knowing full well that they they won't go over well with his strategic partner, Xi Jinping? Uh, first of all, I think uh, President Xi, China would like to play a role in the settlement of Ukraine, and they want to be seen to be constructive. And I think they want to be seen to be a peacemaker not someone who wants to attack Taiwan. And they're trying to, I think they're trying to show the world that we have a different image. Uh, you know, Western countries are painting us as this warmongering country going to attack Taiwan. We are the peacemaking country. Okay, they want to make peace. But I don't think they want to make peace alone. They want the European Union in with them because they know they can't shift this alone. Now, I, what struck me as interesting is that Xi Jinping went to Russia, in the press conference, in the statements, no mention was made of Ukraine, which means he and uh, Putin didn't see eye to eye. And Putin said, I'm not ready to negotiate. So that's why I think he didn't call Zelensky. What will he tell Zelensky? He doesn't want to negotiate. So why call Zelensky? He said, I may call Zelensky. But I think he thought if Putin agreed to something, he'll call Zelensky. Now Zelensky, there's nothing to share with Zelensky. And I'm being a political scientist here. If I find that Russia is the piece I really have to move and it's a difficult piece, I'll play more with Russia. Zelensky, Ukraine will come to the peace table, there'll be other things. So you must not offend Russia first. I think if I were the negotiator, I would try to do that. You know, it's not about how it plays out for me in my publicity, in my global image. If I want to solve this, I solve this. The other point which I found quite interesting was that the day he left Moscow, Wang Yi rang up France, someone called Emmanuel Bonner, who was described in the newspaper report as a foreign policy advisor of Macron, to brief him and then to say that France can play a role in this uh, you know, peace negotiations. So it seems to me China doesn't see itself as playing the role alone. In fact, there will be other players, and I'm sure Turkey will have to come in, you know, and um, UN at some stage, I'm sure, too. India, maybe. Maybe China doesn't want India, but India may 
have a useful role to play here, you know. So I think that's how I see this being played out, you know. What were the other questions that you wanted me to answer? About uh, Dan put forward, you know, the notion that Xi Jinping meets with Putin uh, and then when he leaves... Oh, yeah. Moscow, and does he look weak? I think it looks like uh, Putin can play you out, you know. And I think to that extent, you know, you were there, but he didn't agree with anything. He came up with no statement. So may, I don't know whether Putin said, I'm going to send nukes in. You like it or not, I don't care what you said, but this is what I'm going to do. And that's why there was no statement. I don't know. You know, and he said that, you know, I think he indicated that this was not the time. He realizes that this is not a good time. And I have a thought about the 12 uh, point thing, thinking as a negotiator. China doesn't want to put out specific uh, points for negotiation because he knows China knows if they put it on the table, everybody will call with it and shoot it down or whatever. So they go in. I think he went there just to sense if Putin is ready to talk. And he got, he came up, Putin is not ready to talk. And Putin is in a way telling him, you're talking about no nuclear, I'm going to send this stuff. So it wasn't great, you know. So yes, if you say it's weak, weakens his image, it doesn't show he has such a, Strong hand, I think. Mm. I mean, that's how we, I, I see. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. We've just got a couple minutes left, and I'm going to raise a topic that we could probably spend an entire panel discussion talking about, and that's the issue of Taiwan, but European Europeans' perspectives on this question, because it's clear to me, at least, uh, that with the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion and China's growing strategic partnership and alignment with Russia. European concerns uh, and 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 China's you know increasing coercive posture towards Taiwan, both militarily, economically, squeezing international space, diplomatic allies, and the rest. The concern in Europe on the Taiwan question and the notion that Taiwan is not just an issue in the Asia Pacific, but if something happens there, it impacts the whole world. I think Ukraine has brought that out very clearly. Um, on the other hand. You know, we saw Macron visit uh, China and, and pointed out uh, in an interview afterwards that issues in the Indo-Pacific, like Taiwan, are China's own business and Europe cannot handle its own security issues. You know, why should Europe be so worried about uh, what with, with Taiwan? Um, so just a, if you, I'd be interested to hear your perspectives on this issue regarding Europe's perspectives on Taiwan and and the role, the security role uh, that Europe may have in the region and on that question. And I'll start with Yahweh um, and then turn to Dan and finally Ambassador Chan for our closing words. Yeah, as we are uh, getting to the end uh, of this uh, discussion, so I'll be uh, short. I, I think European can play a very important role uh, to decrease the tension in the Taiwan Strait and how uh, European countries can do it. I, I think. Macron, uh, although he was seriously criticized uh, by many in Europe, I, I think he has made a very good point that uh, European countries should not be drawn uh, into uh, the U.S. bandwagon uh, on the issue of Taiwan. Uh, number two, I think uh, U.S. Can, uh, European Union can play a probably even bigger role is to go to Washington and tell Washington that you need to really uh, you know, rethink about what you are doing uh, here, and also at the same time, 
to make it very clear to Beijing that the cost uh, of you using force uh, to get Taiwan back to your fold is going to be so high that uh, you, you you should never ever uh, do it. So even though no European countries wants to publicly not discuss their position and EU does not have a unified position on Taiwan, I, I think uh, European Union can play a very, very important role on this in this area. Thank you. Thank you, Yahweh. A quick final word from Ambassador Chan, because I know Dan has to leave very quickly. Um, any final thoughts, Ambassador Chan, from your perspective? Um, I uh, agree with many things that uh, Professor Liu said. Let me say that, uh, you know, uh, in my region, we welcome the participation of Germany, France, uh, uh, Britain, as they sail their ships through the ceilings, you know, because it makes it real that the South China Sea are international ceilings. But what we do not want is NATO to come into the region. We're very clear about that. And what has happened is with Ukraine is that the NATO view of Taiwan has become is seen through Ukraine lenses. And I think that makes it a bit more troublesome, you know. And uh, I think Europe has, uh, and I, and you know, I think Europe has a role to play, as uh, Professor Liu said, to talk to the United States and to talk to China, that you know, you, a new way must be found. After all, seventy percent of the people in Taiwan see themselves as Taiwanese. You know, is a really hard nut to crack, and yet Taiwan is the reddest of red lines for China. So it seems quite difficult to resolve, you know, but um, that's a reality, you know. The, uh, so I, I think Europe can play a role really with, in this division between the United States and some allies and Russia and China, that we can be friends of both. Europe is friends of both. Many Asian, Southeast Asian countries are friends of both. And we really want the two sides to work together. And how can we make it possible to make conflict avoidable, war avoidable? You know, it's your guardrails. But I sometimes wonder, you know, maybe this is just being naive and altruistic, that if enough people say stop, you know, to both US and China, do they listen? <laughs> well, on that, uh, on that important note, uh, we unfortunately need to end our discussion because we run out of time. Um, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Chen Hongqi, uh, Professor Liu Yaowei, and Ambassador Dan Baer, who has already had to leave. As a terrific discussion, there was a, a, an inclination to want to discuss more on U.S.-China, and maybe we should bring this group back together to do just that at some <laughs> point in time. So thank you again. Uh, appreciate you joining, and uh, thank you to all our listeners and our audience. We look forward to our next discussion. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Wang Yuanhang and Michael Malanconi. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.